Welcome to this week's edition of Storytime. This is a very, very special episode because we're joined by a very, very special guest all the way from across the ocean in uh, Toronto, Canada, former Buffalo Sabres, and more importantly, former Belfast Giants forward, Mr. Sean McMorrow. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Hello out there. We're on the air. It's hockey night tonight. How you doing, buddy? <laughs> yes, it sure is, my friends. I, I, I'm just happy to be on the show with you guys. Like, I, I'm loving this. I'm loving it so much. It just brings back such good memories, you know, like playing for the Giants, living over there. It was the best time of my life. Same with Dundee and Scotland. And so, yeah, I'm ready to go, guys. I'm really excited about this. Perfect. Um, uh, I'm going to pretend that I'm not completely starstruck or anything like that, talking to one of my favorite hockey players of all time. Uh, but, but we'll just get straight into it, Sean. So um, I appreciate that, man. Yeah. So growing up in, in Scarborough, in Ontario, um, I, I know you've spoken previously about your household um, with your brothers and sisters uh, being encouraged to take up different sports, but what made you necessarily want to take up ice hockey? To be honest with you, I was five turning six when I first started playing. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that I really decided. I think that my mom just thought it'd be best for all of us to play hockey because we all did. There was four mm-hmm. kids in my family, you know, and you know, we're, 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 we're getting going to get a lot of listeners from, from your side of the pond. Of course, yeah. So it, it'll be interesting to know that, you know, the names of my siblings, Catherine, Sean, Patrick, and Liam. Very Irish. Right? Okay. Oh yes. Okay. So yeah, all four of us played hockey. And, and I think my mom just kind of just thought that it would be good for us to, to be in a competitive sport like that in a team sport. And, and she just kind of let us in there. And then we just all liked it after we started. And it was, that was my situation. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, it, it's, it's just, it's very, uh, it's very nice to hear like people have interactions and stuff like that, it, it, especially in youth. Um, sports because I know an example for me I was put in to play uh, football and rugby from a young age and to be honest man there's nothing I hated more than wasting my Saturday playing sports when you could have been watching cartoons or something Um, but like with with hockey as your chosen sport I know your brother Liam is a professional basketball player as well correct yes yeah and Um, and soon to be wrestler We'll, oh, we'll talk about that on another awesome. show. That sounds good, awesome. um, But what was it like? Um, because I know, for example, uh, being some uh, like a Caucasian person, there's a lot of representation for me in you can pick pretty much any sport in the world and you can see a lot of representation for someone like me or someone like Darren. But what was it like uh, going into a sport where uh, you didn't see a lot of people like you, like, you know, being this, the face of a franchise, essentially? until yes. what, like Jerome McGinley, George LaRock kind of. And- yeah, I mean, yeah, no, and, and, and that's a great question, man. Um, when I was growing up, I, the advantage that I had, I, I, I am going to answer your question, but I just, I just <laughs> want the listeners, yeah, I, I want the listeners to know that an advantage that I had was I came, I come from a biracial family. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my mother is a six foot Irish lady, right? My father, six foot six, guy from Trinidad and Tobago, and he's a black Trinidadian. So mm-hmm. my, my father's black, my mother's white. Mm-hmm. To society, I'm, I'm considered a light-skinned black guy, and I'm more than fine with that. I'm very comfortable with my identity. And you'll find that a lot of mixed kids are. Mm-hmm. You know, they go through stages like everyone else where people are like, what are you black? What are you white? You know, all this type of stuff. But we're considered light-skinned black people mostly when there's one black and one white parent. Mm-hmm. And most of us, like I said, are very comfortable in our skin, um, oh, like the way that we look, but we're different. We're different. And the advantage that I had where I'm, where I'm getting at with this is that 
my mom's family is all white, right? Mm-hmm. All my cousins, all my aunts, uncles, grandparents, they're all white. They're all, I'm, I'm of Irish and English descent, right? Mm-hmm. So like on my mother's side. So I'm, I was, me and my siblings were used to being in this situation because of our family dynamics, right? Mm-hmm. Because it was all, and McMorrow is my mother's last name. When my parents split up, my mother legally changed our name. She thought we'd be more comfortable being in a city with all the McMorrows, and she was right. And my father's last name is still a proud part of my name, but McMorrow is officially my surname on my license on the back of my Belfast Giants jersey, because that's me. Mm-hmm. And so I had the advantage of being used to being a little bit different. When I was younger, I wasn't really treated any different than the other kids. So I was also lucky because, you know, the part of Canada that I came from didn't necessarily have as much racism as a place where George LaRock grew up. Mm-hmm. And I had him as a guest on my podcast a couple episodes ago mm-hmm. and, he, and he went through things where he almost quit hockey because he was getting you know called racial slurs by the parents of players on his own team when he's 12 years old right so mm-hmm. he was almost gonna quit and you know again we'll talk about that uh, uh, when we do another show right mm-hmm. guys but for me I got minimal racism as a kid I was used to being different because of the dynamics in my in my mixed family right the only I shouldn't say the only the first time in my hockey life where I experienced racism was the age where kids usually start identifying in different groups like when they go on to like a a middle school to high school you'll notice that when kids start high school they start hanging out in groups where this group likes the same kind of music. This group likes to wear baggy pants, this group, you know, and, but, and at the same time, you'll notice that the races will kind of be flocking together as well. People are trying to identify, trying to figure out who they are. And like, I had friends in grade eight that spoke normally. And then in grade nine, when we went to high school, they started talking with accents from where their parents were from. And I'm like, wait a second, I went, I was in your class last year, I didn't have an accent, but kids start acting a little bit different and weird around the early teens, 13, 14. And then that's when I started going through things like guys were, you know, kind of centering me out in my own dressing room, because that's what was happening at school. There was a little bit of tension between the groups. And so now it's kind of like, now it's coming into the hockey dressing room too. So it's interesting how life kind of works the same way as hockey. I looked at all the age groups, like in Canada, we got novice, minor, bantam, a novice, minor, Adam, peewee, minor, peewee, and it goes all the way up to bantam and midget. Those are like grades, you know what I mean? So for me, every grade was like a different, a different year, a different season. I was always playing at the highest level. I happened to be on, on a really good team had the same base from when we were like nine years old to when we were 16 till we moved on to junior mm-hmm. all the parents were very supportive of me so I was one of the lucky ones and I didn't experience racism probably till my early teens in hockey and, and I'm very grateful for that and that was a very long answer to your question oh no it's all good I found um I kind of found a weird thing when I lived in Canada was uh, how people identify is slightly different to people maybe in the States. So when I lived in Canada, people would say, I'm Canadian of Irish descent. But when I was in the States, people would say, I'm Irish American. I'm like, that's like, you can't decide what you are. Whereas everyone in Canada is Canadian first, and then they can tell you a heritage. It's a lot more, it's kind of a lot more decided. You guys are more comfortable with yourselves. Yeah. And, and you know what? You're exactly right. And, and I realized this when I, my first year, few years pro, I obviously lived in the States. I lived in Rochester, New York. Now I'm 20 years old, living in Rochester, New York. I decided to stay the summer and I worked a summer job, you know, to make some extra money because mm-hmm. I kept my place. And talking to my coworkers, asking them where they're from, none of, and, and, and I'm talking about the, the black people, none of them knew where they were from. So that's the difference. Black people in Canada, they know their history. They know their culture. A lot of us are from the Caribbean, the West Indies, Africa. We're from all over, but we know where we're from. Mm-hmm. The black, a lot, not all of them, but a lot of the black people in the States, because of their history and because of slavery and all that kind of stuff, 
they don't really know where they're from. So they say, I don't know, I'm American, I'm, I'm black, I'm American. Like, you know what I mean? Because they don't know where they're from. They don't know if they're, like my father's from Trinidad. You know what I mean? They don't know if their great, great, great grandfather was from Trinidad or not, because it, it's a different type of history, right? So I was, I learned so much living in that country, just the differences where we border each other, but there's a big difference in the cultures mm. and how the races work and how they identify with themselves. You're absolutely right, my friend. Yeah, cool. um, and like looking at it now in terms of professional ice hockey, um, it's uh, evident for someone like me or Darren who are watching the league um, from a completely different time zone over in Europe uh, and looking at it and it's it's a lot more visible uh the diversity in teams be it you know um more asian players more black players whatever do you kind to uh do you kind of like see it as uh progress at, like the progression that has been made uh is due to the league being more inclusive or is it more people like yourself, George LaRock, Jerome McGinley, uh, Anson Carter, all the different like visible people who, you know, played in the NHL when it wasn't as a diverse kind of sport? Yeah, I mean, this this topic right here, guys, is like the hot topic in North mm. America, right? Because mm -hmm. we had, I mean, it was worldwide, but the NBA professional sports leagues, they actually did protests in North America when there was incidences that happened with the police against certain groups, mostly black people, you know, with police, George Floyd, uh -huh. there's, there's, there was a few uh -huh. cases. And when this happened, the athletes protested and the NBA were the leaders. The NHL did a little bit, um, like I just mentioned, but there was, there was movements. And, and so because of this movements, there became talk, there became podcasts talking about it. And we're, and we're trying to figure out, you know, how can hockey be more accessible? Mm -hmm. And it's very simple. There's a lot of demographic reasons why it's mostly Caucasian sport in, in North America. Different countries, there's gonna be different reasons. In North America per se, Canada and the US, the, the hockey is the most expensive sport in the world. It costs an extremely, a, a, a lot of, it's a, there's a lot of money that's spent in registration, equipment, um, practice, ice time. You got to rent the ice. It's not like you're just finding a field somewhere and, and playing soccer or, or I mean, you know, footy, I should say, or <laughs> just finding a court where there's some asphalt and setting up some baskets and, and setting up a basketball game. Like you can't do that with hockey, right? So you have to be in a situation where the demographic is, it's, it's, it's very difficult to do the hockey thing with a single parent, okay? My mom did it, but she's super mom, which most moms are, but mm -hmm. not everybody can be like that. So hockey is a sport that mostly takes a two parent family that takes a certain amount of income that takes time, that takes this, that takes that. So with all those things considered, it eliminates a lot of groups. And unfortunately, a lot of those groups are minority groups. So the key to that, to making hockey more accessible is to make it more cost efficient, to get into the areas where the minority groups are so that they can like how my mom did just sign me up because it's available, it's right there. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of issues that need to be addressed and, and organizations like the Hockey Diversity Alliance, the HDA, they're working on it. They're trying to push the NHL to do programs, to go into inner cities. Like this is more for the States to go into the inner cities and really have like an available league where kids can play house league if they want. And maybe it's funded by the city. So they don't necessarily have to pay that registration fee that the suburban family can afford, but they might not be able to afford. Right. So it's very deep. There's so many levels to it. We're getting closer and, and, and it's, and it's a positive road that we're going down by talking about it. Exactly. I think Sean, you made a, you made a brilliant point about your, your childhood in Canada. So my friend, Ray Moore, is, uh, his parents were Irish, but he grew up in Toronto. And Ray uh, played Gaelic football with me 
in Toronto for a team called St. Michael's. So we would have played in Centennial Park, Toronto. Um, I'm saying it wrong. It's Toronto. Sorry, not Toronto. But um, Ray came from a single parent family where his mom had a second job so he could play hockey. And that was that was yeah. just the only way oh, to yeah. keep up. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I'll, I'll, I'll say one thing, which is a well-known fact. The best players in Toronto, like guys that came out of Toronto, like Anthony Stewart, like Chris Stewart, like a lot of guys, if they couldn't afford it, trust me, there was teams bidding on willing to, to pick up these fees because unless you're extremely talented, you're not going to get any breaks like, like the Stewart brothers and, and like other examples. E- even, even myself, man, there was many years where I didn't pay registration because my coach knew that our family couldn't afford it, but I was important to the team and, and, and they could afford it. So they, they waived it for me some years, you know what I mean? And, and that's a beautiful thing that I got that opportunity, you know, maybe in other cities in Canada, I wouldn't have. Exactly. And things like could have where, been where George LaRock grew up. I wouldn't have. Yeah. And like, just thinking about uh, if that was the case, how things would have been different. Um, and I just, I just want to uh, talk briefly, Sean, about um, obviously the teams you've played for uh uh, no disrespect to any of them, but the only ones I care about are Belfast and Buffalo. Um, so, uh, yeah, what was it like growing up in uh, Scarborough, Ontario? Uh, I'm sure you were a, a big Leafs fan growing up then. Huge. Huge, huge, huge. Leafs fan. Uh, and then going Massive. on to your first professional NHL game was against the Toronto Maple Leafs. I mean, like that must have been a dream come true. Yeah. You said it perfectly. It, it was a dream come true. Um, I, I'm not going to go out too, too long. Mm-hmm. Perfect example of how I grew up. I grew up, I went my, my, before my mother bought my grandfather's house, we lived about five minutes away from my grandfather's house. Um, I used to walk over on Saturday nights where I didn't play um, my own game. I would mm-hmm. walk over on a Saturday mm-hmm. night. It was a routine that I had, a, a little... Um, like a, a cultural thing that me, my grandfather, and my great uncle Frank, we would watch Saturday. We would watch Saturday night hockey night in Canada. Whoever the Toronto Maple Leafs were playing, and all we would do is look forward to that first intermission to watch Don Cherry's, um, you know, the first intermission. Right. I want to see a suit. What kind of suit is Don Cherry got exactly. on? Exactly, coach's corner. Right. <laughs> so that's how I grew up. Right. With 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 hot chocolate and and raisin bran toast. Right. With my grandfather, my great uncle Frank. And I grew up that way. So when I found out that I got called up to the Buffalo Sabres when I was playing for the Rochester Americans, and when I found that out and I was told that it was going to be Toronto, like I couldn't really, I can't really express like the feelings that I'm getting because I'm, I'm getting like, like when the, when the hairs stick up on the back of your neck, but like times 20 all through your body, because you're just trying to think that what you've been imagining your whole life. Like when I watch that as a kid, I'm imagining, you know, wouldn't it be so awesome to be able to do that? This is incredible. This is our culture. And so you're right. It was a dream come true, man. And, and I, I could talk about the game for, for 10 hours, but I know that we got a time limit, <laughs> but it was incredible. It was great that it was against Toronto. Um, that was just like the sugar on top. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and man, I'll never forget any, any part of that game. Mm-hmm. So, like, uh, moving moving on from what was your NHL debut? Two thousand and two. It was the two thousand two two thousand three season, but it was season. in March, so it was two thousand three. Yeah. Um. So, uh, yeah, moving on from there to two thousand and nine, uh, you find yourself uh part of the Belfast Giants of the Elite Ice Hockey League. Obviously, uh, mine and Darren's home team, um, who we're great fans of. But what what steps? Uh, led you to, uh, you know, becoming a Belfast Giant and becoming one of not only the most popular players in Giants history, but also one of the players that has done most for uh, different community aspects of the Giants. Yeah, and, and and you know what, man? Like, like I like just hearing you talk about it. You know, like I I get a little emotional. Um, the two years that I spent um, over where you guys are, especially the year with, with Belfast, like, um, it was the greatest time of my life. Um, I really felt fulfilled. 
I was a guy that, that, you know, Steve Thornton and Todd Kelman, they told me that the hard man, which I realized what that meant after they told me what it meant. We say tough guy over in North America. You guys have seen the hard man, right? So yeah, I yeah. the hard man of the Belfast Giants. I mean, it's it, now hockey's changed so much. I mean, who knows what it's like now? But 10 years ago, the hard man for the Belfast Giants was the most one of the most important players on the team. And the reason for that is because of the passion and the drive of the citizens of the city and the history. And it was just an important part that the Giants had a guy that could pretty much throw down with anybody and entertain the fans. So that was the first thing. And because I was a guy that was so involved with the off-ice stuff in the AHL, right? And like, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter about awards, guys. The only reason why I bring it up is just to let people understand of how consistent and how important it was to me. Because mm -hmm. unless you're the most consistent and unless you're the most productive, you're not going to get the award. So the award is just proof of what's really going on. So it's not about the award, but the award is the introduction. So there's an award in the AHL called the Man of the Year. And it's given to the player that has the biggest influence in his community for all the charity or whatever they have going on, right? So I won that twice with Rochester and one with Rockford. Rockford was the team that I played for the year before Belfast. Belfast did, Belfast did their research. They wanted a guy that could really step up and be the face of the team off the ice because there's no city in the world that has history like the Belfast Giants. There's no sports team in the world that can bring two communities together from a professional team. And I just love talking about it. Mm -hmm. When I talk about our team here, the Giants, this is what I say. I go, people need to know. The British government uses the Belfast Giants to bring the communities together. And they do it because it's a somewhat new sport. The name was picked to be completely neutral to any type of religious land or any type of side of anything. It's the Giants Causeway. It's the northern tip of one of the beautiful, most beautiful islands in the world, okay? The colors were chosen on purpose because they're neutral to any team, like the Celtic, like the Rangers, like any team that's associated with that. Now, mm -hmm. I love both of those teams that I just mentioned, but historically, they divide. Where, where the Belfast Giants do the opposite. You are not allowed in the Odyssey Arena unless you're wearing a Belfast Giants jersey or civilian clothes. If you think you're walking in there with a football jersey on or this or that, no, no, no. It's not happening in the Odyssey. You're not allowed inside. There's no national anthem in the Odyssey. We don't want any tension or any reason for there to be any type of fighting. So me, if, if I'm a kid that, that lives on the shank, if I'm a kid that lives on the Falls Road, I can come to the Odyssey Arena and celebrate a team with my Belfast brother, and it doesn't matter what we've been taught or what we follow or what church we go to. And there's no team in the world that does this except for the Belfast Giants. And it is such a beautiful thing. I was so proud to be the guy that was doing all the promotions. That's what I'm all about, man. What did I tell you guys before the show? I think of myself as a walking promotion. So what other guy would fit that role than to embrace that power that the Giants have a platform for, man? I felt so powerful doing this. And my message was strong because like we talked about, gentlemen, I'm different from the average hockey player. So what if I, what if my mom didn't take that risk and be like, you know what? I don't want my my kids, you know, to be uncomfortable and to be in a sport where they're, they're different from everybody or, you know, that they might have different beliefs because they have different backgrounds. So maybe we shouldn't do this. Well, if she didn't do that, then I wouldn't be here talking to all you wonderful kids. And we're in some community center in the middle of the city center in Belfast. And I'm a kid from, from Scarborough that was born in Canada, right? So because that risk was taken, I know that I can get along and celebrate and, and be 
powerful and be successful with people that may not look like the same as I do, but more importantly, have different cultures and different beliefs. It doesn't matter. I'm different. Look what I'm doing. You guys are here right now. Sean, look, it sounds like you really did your homework before you came to Belfast. And uh, it was really nice to know that if anyone was going to be fighting in the SSC arena, it was going to be you. So that's, <laughs> that's good to know. Yeah, I mean, I, um, again, guys, I, I was lucky again with the whole recruiting process because my general manager for the Rockford Ice Hogs, Ice, Ice Hogs, I was going to say Ice Dogs, got me talking <laughs> Mississauga Don Cherry lately, Mississauga, uh, Rockford Ice Hogs, that my general manager was Mark Bernard, who was a goaltender in the Elite League when it was, what was the league called before it was the Elite League? It was, it was something the, else. It was the, the Super League. League or something? Super League, Super yeah. League right? Yeah, so with the Bracknell Bees. Yeah, he was, he was an import that came, a goalie import. I think he played for the team that's right, that was right close to London. Yeah, um, the, the so he played for the Basin London Stone. Knights and the... Um, he was the former coach of the Basingstoke Bisons yeah. and yeah. the Bracknell Bees as well. Perfect. Yeah, I knew there was a lot of bees. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, Mark Bernard, my general manager, he knows Todd Kelman. They did their homework. They're looking for the community guy. They gave Mark Bernard a call. Mark Bernard's like, yep, he's going to win man of the year this year too for us. And yeah, he's a great guy. And he was like my agent. Mark Bernard was like my agent. And he actually brokered the deal. Like I knew what my, what, what I, how many British pounds I was getting per week and everything from Mark Bernard, right? So it was really cool that I had that connection. I was able to get a really good deal too, which is important to the players. You know, they, they want the, the peace of mind, right? And I was just treated first class right from the beginning. And, and I was, you know, they, they asked me what my nickname was. And I said, you know what, other than like Mac or Macker, you know, sometimes people call me the sheriff and they went, went totally, totally all the way with that. And they really created that for me. I mean, I embraced it, but the Belfast Giants really started the real sheriff movement like with these t-shirts, with the badges and just with the name recognition so that's a whole other thing too that that I really owe a lot to the Belfast Giants. Yeah, man, that's amazing. <laughs> um, as as we uh, were just saying at the break, there it uh, yeah, it's inspiring to uh, think of someone who isn't from this kind of like obviously background like we're from uh, to think of the the importance of someone like yourself coming to play um, for a team that you know it was founded in two thousand. It's, you know, in terms of ice hockey teams, relatively young, you know, so it's like yeah. if you look in the original six teams, uh, they have, you know, long lists of history, but we don't have that. But yet you still kind of wanted to come and make a difference because it was the opportunity was there for you. And yeah, it's just a totally inspiring story. Man. Yeah, no, and I, I appreciate that, buddy. And like, yeah. like I said, it was the best time of my life. Um, you know, I, I have the background on my mother's side, like we discussed from there. Uh, the team told me that it would probably be a lot better for me if I went out and got a UK ancestry visa, which I was qualified to do because my grandfather was born over there. And if you have a grandfather that was born over there and you have a reason for going, you qualify for a five-year ancestry visa, which I had, right? So I could have worked anywhere and other, other, like as a part from the Giants, if I wanted to stay after or whatever. And, and so it was a great opportunity. I embraced it. I was so proud to be there. When I would hear that, that Celtic music and, and, and just like, you know what I mean? Like I would, I, and it got my blood flowing, man. Like, like the music that I would hear in the Odyssey arena, like I would literally, like when I was doing my stance and fighting, I, I had so much more power because of the strong history behind this city man. and and that those are the players that you really want to get is the players that feel that way about going somewhere and I think that if players really knew everything that the Giants were about they would get so many more people so many more quality players that really want to be there and create championship teams and win all the cups yeah, and exactly. you know, it's the best arena it's the best city 
man, it is, it is, it is amazing to be there. And, and I hope a lot of players that are on the bubble of where they want to go hear this and they change their minds and they end up calling whoever's in charge of the Giants now. You know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Here's hoping. I'll be a recruiter for the Giants. Tell there you go. That. There you go, man. So moving on, um, after your time with Belfast and Dundee and your time with uh, like being in the UK with the Elite League, um, moving back to what was it, the um, LNAH with was it was it back with St. Hyacinth or was it with Marquise at this point? It was, it was the marquee mm-hmm. when I went from Dundee back to the LNAH. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the same, the same guy that was the owner of the top design, St. Hyacinth. That's mm-hmm. very impressive that you're bringing up that team because that goes back to, to 06, 07 and 07, 08. But it was a big year with that team. But, but yeah, um, same type of management, but they had this team that was up in Jonquière, which is the northern part of Quebec. And they're like the New York Yankees of that league. Like they were, or, or I should say like the, whoever the top team is in the Champions League, they were that team <laughs> of the Quebec League, right? And, you know, like highest payroll, best arena, you know, best players expected to win championship history, you know, and, and I, and, and, and that, and that, and, and it was great. It was a great experience going there too. That sounds absolutely amazing. Like, especially going um, like from from the UK, which obviously, as we said a couple of times now on the podcast, it isn't necessarily the biggest hockey hockey market in the world. Obviously, in Europe, there's uh, you know Russia, Sweden, Finland, loads of different places. Um, but then after coming back, uh, going to you know Quebec and stuff like that, do you want to? Uh, I, I don't want to get anything wrong or get any of the details wrong. So I'll let you explain uh, what happened uh, after your time with Belfast and then Marquis as well. Yeah, for sure. So I, I got a call in, I think it was like February of when I was playing in Belfast. So now this is, I would say, you know, the, the final four weekend is probably in April mm, and not yeah, in, it is. right. So this was probably the end of February. So like about a month before the end of the season. And I got a call and it was from a lawyer that I had used in Rochester, New York for like traffic tickets and stuff and whatever. And, you know, he told me that there was an indictment that was going to be put out for me from Rochester, New York for something that happened, a conspiracy charge for something that happened like a while back. And I was like, what? I'm like, how could that even be possible? And playing hockey in, in Belfast, I'm in Belfast right now, man. Like, what, what do you mean? I haven't been to Rochester in a long time. I'm talking like, you know, six, seven, eight years type of thing, right? I'm like, so I, I, I didn't really take it seriously. And I'm the type of guy where whenever, you know, I'm, I'm working on it right now as an adult, but sometimes when I'm not too happy about something, you know, I'll try to shove it in my back pocket and try to ignore mm-hmm. it. So, I mean, I really didn't know what else to do in this situation. I mean, I'm being told a crazy thing by someone very far away and that's not on my mind at all. And so naturally I'm putting it in my back pocket. Well, of course, a week later, the indictment came out. So the indictment came out and pretty much what it was, it was, it was a conspiracy marijuana charge. So what that means is that in the U.S., I, a lot of people, you know, they watch, they watch like shows like Locked Up Abroad or, you know, the meanest prisons in the USA and they show San Quentin and, you know, and, and, and so pretty much, you know, what people have heard time and time again is that the American system is broken. There's oh, yeah. a big problem with that system, right? Mm-hmm. And part of that reason is because when the Americans had the big issue with the five families in New York, um, you know, the organized crime families. And if you know that history, you would know that the bosses of those families would never get in trouble because the feds, the FBI could never get to them, right? Because they were so high up, there's so many people in between them that let's say if there was a big crime or a murder or something, you know what I mean? They could never really get the Tony Soprano, the, the you know what I mean? They could never yeah. get that guy because there was 10 guys underneath them. So they introduced the charge 
called the conspiracy charge. So what the conspiracy charge is, is, okay, so we can't charge Tony Soprano with, with trafficking because we can't, we can't connect him to any of this. We know he's the boss, but we can't connect him to it. But what we can charge him with is conspiracy trafficking. Because in the USA, how it works is you don't need to have pictures of Tony Soprano doing bad stuff. You don't have to have videotape. You don't have to have any type of physical proof. But what you do have to have is more than one person that's willing to testify that Tony Soprano was part of the conspiracy. Okay? So now... They were able to get all the top bosses, charging them with conspiracy, and they finally were able to solve that. So now this is where it's broken. Now, now people listening to this, okay, so what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. These guys have been murdering and, and racketeering and, 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 and bullying or intimidation, whatever they call it. They've been, we know that they're dirty. So what's wrong with our little rule change in, in, in the laws in the USA to, get the, to take them down? What's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with it is that the FBI did it to thousands of other people too, not bosses of, of crime families. But little Joe Blow, if they can't get him, they charge him with conspiracy because they're going to get two of his buddies to try to get themselves out of other problems and just testify, yeah, you know, Sean was there. Oh, well, we'll, we're, we'll consider dropping these charges if you can be a part of this big hockey player. You willing to do that? People are desperate. They want to be with their families. If they're looking at time for something, they're going to do anything they can, especially if they haven't seen a, this hockey player in years. Yeah, they were cool with him years ago when he played for the Amherst, but they're not cool with him anymore. They haven't seen him in a long time. So let's save my, you know what? And yeah, so that's what happened with me. I had two of my friends that I hadn't seen in probably about, maybe four, five, six years, they get in trouble for something completely different. I hadn't seen them in years when they got in trouble. And they, they got in trouble. They, they were looking at a lot of time. And one of them said, you know what? I want to know if I can tell you a story about an operation that was happening years ago about an NHL hockey player. So pretty much what he did was he told the story of what he used to do, but he said, I was his boss. I was his buddy that smoked the odd joint with him after my games, because I felt comfortable and protected, that I could do that as an adult. Cannabis is legal in Canada now, right? But this is this was before this time, right? So yeah. people that did it, you know, they, they went to certain, maybe it wasn't the, the best place you should be, but but you were able to do that there and feel safe and, and not everyone liked it. And then that's what I did. I had a group of friends in my early 20s, and I smoked joints with, man. That's like every other university student my age that was in Rochester as well, right? Yeah. So that's yeah. what I did. Years later, it really caught up to me, man, because I really got screwed over pretty bad with this. Was there things that I shouldn't have done? Of course. When, when, when people ask me more specifics, was there times that I lent my buddies money when they said to me on a Friday night, hey, Sean, you think you can lend me $1,000? and I'll give you 3,000 on Monday. I probably did that about 10 times. I have to own that. I did that with my buddies. I knew what they were probably doing, but I wasn't involved, I wasn't around it, whatever, but I knew what they were doing and I have to own that and that was wrong. Once you cross a line, it's a very thin line that you're crossing. It's not like you can just go over a little. So if you if you're gonna be in that atmosphere, my problem was I thought, because I played hockey, that I'd be protected. I thought that people that knew that I smoked joints would just protect me because I was a nice guy and I was just hanging out like everyone else. And I was fighting for their professional hockey team and they really liked that. And I didn't think anything really bad would come out of that. And I was wrong. So my lesson, what I learned, is that it you are the average of the five people that you hang out with. So if there's a couple people in your top five that you know are not good for you, then you're not doing it right. And if you don't change that, it can catch up with you. I knew these guys weren't doing like things that were legal and all that kind of stuff. And I, and I, and I allowed it and, and it came back to haunt me. The sad thing is that it really turned up a lot of levels, man, because the FBI 
got a lot of publicity from this in the Rochester office. Every single person that was involved with that case got a promotion. <laughs> My lawyer told me that the U.S. assistant attorney, um, his last name was Harvey. He was like a, a local celebrity in the FBI office because he was the guy that got the, guilt, the, the guilty plea out of the NHL hockey player, right? They, they prosecute poor people from the inner city all the time. And this was their opportunity to really get some attention. And they had two guys that were willing to cooperate for this conspiracy charge. It's not, it wasn't just the regular charge, it was conspiracy. And that's how it works in that country. If it was in Canada, it couldn't happen. In Canada, if you're charged with conspiracy, there has to be one item of physical proof that you were involved. You gotta have something. In the States, they don't. And that's why it's a broken system, guys. And the lesson from it is don't be around people that aren't doing the right things. And that's what I would preach yeah, when I yeah. talk about this. I wanna be a public speaker. I have a great story. I had to overcome so many things, guys. I had to do 20 straight months. It was the lowest possible security because on paper, I was a first time offender. There was no weapons or no violence in the case. Of course, there wasn't. It was a conspiracy case that wasn't even legit, right? So because of all that, I went to a place where they call a camp. There wasn't even really fences. It was, it was like guys that did white collar crimes like taxes and credit fraud, fraud and all this weird stuff that's just as bad as anything else, but it's not, it's not violent. It's not, there's no weapons involved really. It was the lowest of the low. I was away from my family. It was terrible. It was, it was, I went through days where I didn't, it was hard to go on, but I made the best of my time while I was there. As I played major junior, I got traded a bunch of times. I was, when I was in grade nine and grade 10, I was ahead of my class. I had more credits than I was supposed to. By the time I was at the end of grade 12, I played for five OHL teams, went to seven high schools. I was two credit short, guys. I never graduated high school when I turned pro. I knew I was going to get the two credits, like online or something, but I never graduated. When I was in there, I ended up getting my GED, which is the, you know, the, the, the high school equivalency over here. I don't know what it's called over there. Um, I ended up getting my GED. Then I ended up teaching the GED. Then I ended up teaching an exercise class. Then I ended up taking business courses. Then I ended up taking a class called Paradigm Thinking, which is like a cognitive thinking class, which really makes you realize what, what is really success. When people ask somebody that, they think of, oh, a nice car, a big house, oh, a really pretty wife, right? But really what, what you learn from classes, from life improvement classes, like I did when I was forced to improve my life because I couldn't go anywhere for 20 months, I made the best of it. And I learned that what success really is, is living in the here and now, is being present and is living out your, your life purpose. And what I figured out my life purpose is, is to uplift, is to make things better, is to bridge the gap. That's what I'm best at. When I see a situation that's good, I know how to make it even that much better. And that's a perfect example of when I came to the Belfast Giants. I was just about to say. Right? So, and it was things that I did in Belfast. I realized when I was in that minimum security camp, which they call Club Fed as a nickname, which started with the mob bosses, because all the mob bosses were in this thing, in this Fed, in this Fed system. And the, 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 the facilities were so nice. And, and it was, there was no like fights in there that they ended up calling it Club Fed, right? Instead of Club Fed, which is a famous vacation agency in, in the States, I think it is, right? Yeah. So anyway, I realized why I enjoyed doing all those things in Belfast. Why did I enjoy being a part of the promotional and charitable events in the city of Belfast and seeing these kids from different neighborhoods sit beside each other and start giving each other high fives because that's what my passion is. And that's what I learned. And that's why it was the best time in my life playing for the Giants because I was able to fulfill all these things that I like, man. All in one thing, playing hockey, what I've been doing my whole life. So 
when I, when, so I'll tell you guys, like, because a lot of people are like, you know, you know, you didn't come back. You didn't come back. Well, the news was so big in Belfast, man, that I had to go. What I was thinking in my mind, my, what my lawyer told me was, first of all, this is going to blow over very quickly. It's completely a publicity stunt. going to get dropped any second. They just want you to come in. If you, if you, if you, if you agree to voluntarily come in because they would have to like extradite me and all this crazy stuff. If I like, didn't want to turn myself in, if I was willing to voluntarily come in, they said that I would automatically get a $25,000 signature bond. So all I would have to do is sign a paper and there would be no restrictions or no conditions on my, on my travel and everything. I played for the Dundee stars, brother, the, the August, after I turned my, I, I came in at in, in the end of March in Rochester, New York, signed this paper. The Belfast Giants said to me, as soon as you get this resolve, Sean, as soon as it's dropped, you're right back here, buddy. Please figure this out. Because I told them, I go, I think I just need to go back for a week. And they want me to like, they want the publicity, they want in the newspaper, and then they don't have any evidence. So I think that they're just going to drop it. But little did I know is that they didn't need any evidence, man. I was being strung along this whole time, thinking that I wasn't going to go to jail. The whole time I was told I will not do one day in jail. We just need to get through this. This is more about the embarrassment. You're being dragged through the dirt. That's your jail. I was brainwashed by my high-priced lawyer, me and my family, to be strung along, to plead guilty. The judge said on record that he was strongly considering a probation sentence. And a probation sentence could have been all the way if I'd gotten sentenced up to six months. Because I was an international um, whatever situation, a six-month sentence would be considered probation, and I would just go home. So when I went to that sentencing, I had 25 people in the courtroom. I had a fiancé that was from Rochester, New York, her whole family in there. There was a big party planned in Toronto that same night because everyone was 100% sure that I was going home. And when I heard the words... I hereby sentence you to the Federal Bureau of Prisons for a term of 24 months. That's what the judge said. The first thing I thought, 24 months is two years. Two years. And I almost fainted because normally in my type of situation, like a nonviolent defendant that knows that he's probably going to get a little bit of time, six months, a year, Obviously, that's not a little bit of time, but for people that do time, that's considered baby time, right? So if you know that you're going to get a little bit of time, if you have a record like mine, which was completely clean, squeaky baby clean, you're able to negotiate a self-surrender. What does that mean? It means that on sentencing day, your lawyer has convinced you that you're probably going to get some time, man. So let's negotiate a self-surrender so when you do get sentenced, you don't have to go in that day. You can go back to your family. They're going to give you about 30 days to get all your affairs together. And then your family is able to drive you right to that institution. And you can say your goodbyes and, and, and your, everything can be planned out. But because I was convinced that I would get no time, we're obviously not, we're not bartering a deal like that. I'm not supposed to get any time. So when the judge said that, with all my family watching, with my fiance in the front row, Judge gives me the 24 months. I had to go. I had to go. I drove there with my fiance and I think my dog. We drove down from Toronto. We were at my mom's house. It's only a three hour drive. So we just had to cross. I had like a special day pass because I had court. You know, we go there. Oh man, I can't wait to come back. This is finally going to be over. You know, I, I have like a lot of prestigious uncles and stuff, right? My mom's brother's you know, they, they came up to me and, you know, give me a pat on the back and say, Sean, you know, this is the day. It's finally going to be over, man. You've been through so much. Like, that's where my mind was at. That's where our family was at. The judge says that, man, it was like, man, I can't even explain to you guys. There was silence. You could hear pin drops from buildings down the street, man. No one knew what to think. Like, this guy just sentenced this guy to two years and everyone in the courtroom thought he was going home. So what's happening here? Something's going on here. I thought, to be honest with you, it was so hard for me to accept that I thought it was such a conspiracy that it was like up to me to find the whistleblower. I'm like, someone's going to be the whistleblower. I know this. This is crazy. I couldn't believe it, right? 
But the point is, guys, it happened. I had to go immediately. My 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 lawyer says, Judge, can can my client hug his mother and his brother and his fiance? Because they were like right in the front. It was like only like three or four people in each row. And then the judge was like, Yeah. So I give them a hug and they're like, everything's gonna be okay. And I'm like, you know, crying. But like I'm I'm talking about it normal now, guys, because I'm able to talk about it. And but this took a long time for me to get to. So I was gone. And, and the funniest thing, the funniest, the, the weirdest thing about it was how it works in, in New York state is in the cities, they have like their city police departments, but then in like the suburbs and the counties, it's called the sheriff's department. So it's the Monroe County Sheriff's Department with a big sheriff's badge and I'm, and I'm being let out, I'm cuffed. I was just home a couple hours ago having breakfast with my girl and my, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then I'm being cuffed, being sent off, told them about two years, going into the sheriff's car so the sheriff gets to go in the sheriff's car just off to the sunset but the sad thing is is it's not a good situation and it's me it was like it was like a movie so so yeah and, and like i said guys I, I i made the best of the time the way that i can look at it now is almost like you know how we hear stories about like michael jackson how he did all these weird things and he had he was in like this these life-preserving tubes and stuff. I don't even know what he called them. There was some word for them. I, I just feel like I was preserved. Like I didn't smoke one cigarette. I didn't smoke, I didn't do any drugs. I didn't drink any alcohol. This was 20 months, guys, right? So it did something good for me, eating shitty food, exercising a lot, and you know, and, and just making my inner self grow out, knowing what my passions are, my beliefs, my life purpose graduating high school, feeling a little bit proud that it wasn't just a waste. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the, like I said, these are the things that I will discuss and, and I am owning it and I have a story and it's to be told. And I'm glad that you guys asked me about that. Long answer version. Man, hey, what can be said, man? You left absolutely no stone unturned there. Um, I want the Giants fans to know, though, brother, because I know you guys are fans, right? Mm -hmm. I want them to know that it was so devastating that I had to leave. I thought, like, I, and you know what? It, it was my calling. I did it. I embraced it, and I loved it, but I had to leave. It was my calling. I had finished my career in the States, and I was starting my career, a new career, and that's the way I was looking at it, Right. And I was coming back the next season a thousand percent, right? And 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 you know what? The Giants, I don't have anything bad to say about them. The news was so bad and it was so biased and that the Giants had to have me cleared to come back. And I understand that. But because it was such a joke, guys, that I was actually able to come back and play professional hockey in a different continent when I'm supposed to be up on these charges. Right. And, and that's just just that alone should let people know how ridiculous it was. And unfortunately, guys, I hope that when people hear what happened to me, that it's big enough reasons for changes to be made in that system, because really they can get whoever they want. They just have to catch a time in their life when they were hanging around with some bad apples and they can connect them to whatever they want. And it's very, very sad. And I hope it never happens to anyone else because man, I'll tell you what, if I didn't have the support and the family and the friends and, and loved ones that I had, then I don't know if, if I would have made the best of that time, but I did, right? So now what do I do? I came out of there. I played two more very strong seasons in the LNAH. Now what I'm trying to do is I really want to get on the media side of things. I really want to be a TV sports broadcaster Right. I want to be a public speaker as well. And I'm practicing and doing the, the small things that I need to do to really learn how to create my own style. And I really love doing things with guys like yourself because I learn. I don't know if you guys are noticing, but I'm watching everything you guys are doing. You guys are so good at this. And I, and I hope that I could get as good as you guys one day at this because this is what I want to do for the next 25 years. Sean, we're like we're both stand up comedians. We're not used to being this quiet for this long, so that's a hell of a story. You I'm managed sorry, to shut buddy, us I up. Know. 
We got no. You, you've kept us quiet. That's good. You I like go that. Ahead. I'll shut up for a bit. No, <laughs> no, um, that, that's what we brought you here for. You're here, you're here to talk. Um, I, d- I just want to say, Sean, uh, just before we get into a couple of quick fire questions that we got sent in for the episode, um, I, for the guts of what, about ten years now, so a whole decade, um, from my time being in college to now, um, I have. Uh, had uh, great opportunities and stuff like that in the kind of sports journalism world. And I've covered a lot of different sports, be it ice hockey, football, uh, international rugby and stuff like that. And uh, it's it, it's actually a pleasure for me to say that uh, you genuinely are one of the most approachable, talkative, friendly people uh, that I've ever come in contact with in my whole sports journalism career. So uh, I just want to say thanks for coming on the podcast and let's get these uh, quick fire questions done eh? hey i appreciate it buddy you don't worry i'll be giving you that 10 quid for saying that. <laughs> i'm pretty sure it was 20 but sure we'll say oh, soon. okay no problem um, buddy so um a couple of quick fire questions uh we got in uh the first question is um we in gretzky obviously the great 99 um had marty mcsorley uh sorry had marty mcsorley uh on his team but uh, this person wants to know who was your Wayne Gretzky? Who would be my Wayne Gretzky? Yeah. Who were okay. you looking after? So, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I would say when I was on when I was on Amherst, where I played four straight years, the Buffalo Sabres farm team. Mm-hmm. My Wayne Gretzky was Jason Pominville, Derek Roy, um, Thomas Vanek, guys like that, because they were like the first rounders. And, and the organization like wanted them to do so well and they did do well, but they were just like the stars. Right. Yeah. So like, I felt that way when I was on Belfast, I felt that way about Colin Shields. Mm-hmm. Like nobody could touch Colin Shields, man. He was not only our captain, but he was the top scorer and he was the man, right. He still is. Right. He still and, is. Um, I didn't have to protect Jeff Swez because. Yeah. yeah Cause he's well, Jeff Swez. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. I, mean, see, I mean, I mean, Shieldsy, Shieldsy for sure in Belfast, you know, and then the guys in, in Rochester and in, and in Rockford were mostly just like the first round guys. I felt yeah. like the Gretzky type. That's class, man. Um, another question comes in here. It's slightly topical. Um, so, so we'll see how this one ages. Um, but who is your money on for the Stanley Cup this year? Uh, the playoffs have just started. Um, yeah. The first couple of games in each round has just taken place. Uh, is there any standout teams for you this year? Or, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, episode one of the Sheriff podcast, we made predictions. My prediction was it's actually going to be probably the matchup in the North division for the next round, because my prediction was that the Edmonton Oilers were going to win the Stanley cup, Mm -hmm. but they were going to go against Toronto to get out of the North division. Right. But now it looks like Toronto is the team and it's going to be they're going to be Edmonton to go on and then I think Toronto I, I think I think my city is going yeah. to win the Stanley Cup this well, year uh, um, yeah we've, we've had a poll ourselves um, talking about uh, the early rounds of the playoffs uh, I'm uh, in the Edmonton camp uh, Darren is obviously Toronto biased so um, yeah let's, let's, let's just see how it goes um, and <laughs> This uh, last question, just to wrap the episode up, Sean, I think you'll really like. Um, but uh, this person has wrote in this question and uh, has asked, what was it like living rent-free in Brad Foth's head for a whole season? What was it like living rent-free? Yeah, in Brad Foth's head. Oh, in Brad Voth's head? Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, look, I'm, I actually I haven't heard his name in a long time, right? But now... The thing with Brad Voth is I use Brad Voth to be like my, my opposite, like my, you know, like neither, I don't know, like, I guess in the Odyssey, he was the bad guy. I was the yeah. good guy. When we went to Cardiff. I was the bad guy. He was the good guy. So yeah, we were like villains to each other. Right. Mm-hmm. And I used that a lot. And, and I felt bad sometimes, man, because I really went hard on him. Right. <laughs> like just with all the trash talk yeah. and the banter and all that. Right. But I mean, I'll tell you one thing. I had no idea that first fight at the Odyssey when he went down after a couple lefts. I had no idea how big of a deal that was. Oh, yeah. 
man, I, if I had known how big of a deal that was, I don't know if it would have been that good because I would have been like so nervous because it would have been like, oh my God, no one's ever put this man down before. And, you know, he just had his way with the team last year and, you know, this and that. And, you know, people told me about it, but I didn't know it all until the season went on. Yeah. Right. So I, I was happy about that because obviously the first fight went really well. He went down. Everyone was happy with it. The Cardiff fans couldn't believe it. And then the rivalry continued, right? And then we got to fight a few more times, but I think most of the entertainment was the trash talk in the papers of me calling him a part-time tough guy and just trying to get him upset in any way to drop the mitts because I knew the Belfast fans just loved seeing a good scrap, man. And like I had to do whatever I could to get the other guy to agree. So yeah, I had to I had to use a lot of banter with Boff, man. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I think I'm speaking on behalf of all of Belfast here when I thank you for it. Um, yeah. ladies, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Sean McMorrow. Yeah, thank you very much, Sean, for coming on. And ladies and gentlemen, please go check out Sean's own podcast, which is the Sheriff Podcast. He said it lots of times during the show, so you'll know where to find him. Check it out. It's a great podcast. He's on uh, Amazon, or not Amazon, sorry. Uh, he's on Instagram, uh, Twitter also, Sean? Yeah, everything Sheriff McMorrow. Perfect. That's yeah. Brandon for you folks. I got you I on Twitter. I appreciate that, guys. Yeah.